You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 21st of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. He's an incredible individual, great intellect, great judge, impeccable history in every way, in every way. The in every way is starting to sound more significant. Donald Trump defends his increasingly indefensible Supreme Court nominee. My guests Ben Ryland, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Karen Krizanovich will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the editor shamed out of a job for printing a piece by someone shamed out of a job, the identity of the new James Bond director, if not the new Bond, and... Diane English and I just looked at each other and we thought, we, we can't not do, we can't not take advantage of this. It's just begging for us. Does the return of Murphy Brown make Donald Trump's presidency somehow worth it? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Ben Ryland and Fernando Augusto Pacheco and the film critic and Monocle 24 contributor Karen Krasanovich. Welcome all. And we will start in the United States where President Donald Trump has been continuing his intrepid expedition of the depths below rock bottom. After days of uncharacteristic restraint vis-a-vis the accusations of historical sexual assault against his Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, Trump has today tweeted that if it was, emphasis that these are his words not mine, as bad as she says, end quote, then surely she would have contacted police at the time, it being obviously unheard of that such crimes should go unreported for fear of victim-blaming by people whose own records on this front may not stand much scrutiny. Your reminder that at least 22 women have made not dissimilar accusations against the president. Um, ben, a hearing with Christine Blasey Ford, who is the woman who has accused Brett Kavanaugh, um, is scheduled for Monday. Uh, it's unclear whether or not this is actually going to happen. She has imposed, not unreasonably in the circumstances, a certain number of conditions that she wishes to be met. Um, should they both testify, and does it matter in which order? I think that uh, now that things have got to this stage, it would be of everyone's benefit that uh, Dr Ford does actually testify. Now, I believe that she has said that she won't testify on Monday. She has opened negotiations up to testifying at some point, although she had earlier said that she wants an FBI investigation, but that has since been ruled out by uh, by, by the people on the other side. So, but eventually, I, I do think she, it would be of everyone's benefit, including her own, to testify. And look, that's going to be an absolutely terrible experience for her, and it's not going to go so well for the Republicans either, if you ask me. But given that we all know so much about the allegations that have been put forth now it i think it, it it's going it's going to help her case to put a face to these allegations because at the moment it's very very easy for people who don't believe any of this and think think it's all just been beaten up to just pass it off as the words of some crazy person who's misremem- misremembering as soon as you put a human face on it as soon as people have someone to attach their emotions to suddenly it's going to become a lot more real for people. And we're all going to watch those sad old men sitting there, the Republican senators, asking her questions, just stirring in their seats because they're going to be so uncomfortable about what they're doing. And 
that's probably going to be a pretty good thing in the long term as well. Uh, Karen, you were nodding your head there, though. I'm somewhat sceptical myself that any of this is going to change anybody's mind about any of it. Isn't this one of those cases where, as in so much as with so many things in the United States, people have picked their team and decided that that's, you know, their team is right, therefore the other team is wrong. Yeah, it's it's very easy. And you have to remember that people have a tendency not to think things through or wait or be moderate about anything. You want to take sides and be reactive. And the reason I was nodding was just that, that you know, yes, a te- you know, testifying would be a really good idea, but it's more the details of of that of that testimony and how it's handled and and if people can be very careful looking at the context and i think that this is really the point of this it's it's you know is it is it going to be truthful is it going to be valid is it going to be real i don't think anybody wants to go into court and testify about stuff like this. I think that it's it's corrosive and it's difficult, and nobody really wants to take their allegations and go, wow, I've got some really bad allegations here. I'd like to have my life taken over by these allegations. I don't think anybody really wants that. So I think it's going to be less about what she says and more about the context of how the reaction from the other people is going to be. And so it's very long-winded to say <laughs> that I think that allegations are going to be embedded in a changing spider web. Mm. Of of people saying things and realizing, ooh, I just spoke like a dinosaur. Absolutely, it's about it's about giving someone a voice because at the moment it's all been about politicians and how politically this is going to be playing out. But we've got to remember that this is coming in the context of all of this Me Too backstory. So that is playing into all of this. The Republicans already know that if they play this incorrectly, just imagine the backlash it's going to ignite. They don't even know how deep the backlash to Donald Trump's election is running within their electorate yet. There's still there's still no telling. Well, They've the, got polling data, but that's about it. The midterms are only a few weeks away. They're terrified. Well, indeed, they are about yeah six or seven weeks from finding out uh, how big that backlash uh, is, uh, or indeed if it exists. Um, Fernando, Trump's tweet earlier today, uh, not actually not even implicitly, actually explicitly suggesting there can't be anything to these allegations because otherwise she would have reported at the time. Um, even by his standards, a, a completely appalling thing to say out loud, it would, you would hope, be career-ending for literally any other politician. How does he continue to get away with it? Well, I don't know, Andrew, but the thing is, I don't think it's actually only Trump. I think we have a kind of new genre of, of populists around the world, and we have many examples. We have Duterte in the Philippines, perhaps Bolsonaro in Brazil, we have Maduro. I do think those leaders, if they tweet what Trump said, probably nothing would happen to them as well. I think that's that, that's quite sad, you know, that they kind of have so much power that they can basically say whatever they want and they know there'll be no uh, strong actions. I mean, it, it's very easy for us to say that perhaps it's just Trump, but there's so many other examples. I think it's something that is spreading globally in a way. I mean, Karen, I, I return, well, my own bleak assessment of these things uh, has come round to the point of I, I used to think that maybe people liked Trump and other populists of belligerent populists of the sort that Fernando mentions, uh, despite uh, their obvious flaws and stupidities. I'm, I'm now starting to think it may actually be because of them yes. that, that Trump's Trump's <laughs> Trump's fans read something like this this obviously crass and appalling thing he said about you know a a woman alleging sexual assault, uh, and and they think great he's my guy. Well. 
He is endlessly amusing. Endlessly. I don't think there's been so much eye-rolling in my country, uh, or around the world, in fact, um, since um, Hitler, probably. Um, Actually, we can't even eye-roll for Hitler. That was just horrible. But this is just incredibly... The stupidity level is astonishing. And yet, you meet people like, for example, Alec Baldwin will say that he doesn't really want to play him on SNL anymore because he's feeling it's, you know, it's agonizing. And then you, you talk to people who know Trump and say, well, he's just a nice guy, you know. But that's, if you know somebody on a personal level, of course they're going to be nice to you. I mean, and I think we can talk about, I'm actually jumping, jumping the, the, the gun here a little bit, but, um, you know, the Murphy Brown, you know, with, with the, which we'll talk about later about Trump um, and and Moonves is that how we say his name Moonves yeah Leslie right? Moonves that, I yeah. mean that's, that's it's it's exactly the same sort of thing with Leslie Moonves at CBS who the, the currently ousted former chief of, of CBS everyone jumped to his defense and said if you know him personally he is a lovely guy but mm-hmm. you know people who are lovely to you in person can actually do terrible terrible things in other contexts but just to return more uh, more more specifically to your point Andrew uh, how can Trump say something like this on Twitter and it not be career ending. Let's remember that in before Trump, it was usually quite a big deal if the president or the prime minister of your country told an outright lie. If they were caught out in a lie, that it was, was a big that deal. Was, that was like you know, it was the near the top of the evening news that that evening. Uh, at last count, four and a half thousand lies wow. that Donald Trump, the pres- while his president, has told. So there is a context here. He's created his own context. That's, that's what he does. That's the secret to his success. OK, well, on a not dissimilar theme, let's look now at this week's upheavals at the New York Review of Books. The editor of the venerable literary journal, Ian Baruma, resigned this week following the uproar that answered his decision to publish a lengthy reflection by disgraced Canadian broadcaster John Gomeshi, who ended up out of work in 2014 and in the dock in 2016 over allegations of sexual assault. Gomeshi was acquitted, but not all the accusations against him have been tested in a court of law. Another charge was settled out of court. Uh, Baruma, who commissioned the piece, has now complained of being convicted on Twitter. Um, Karen, first of all, if if you think back to your time working on magazines and Mm -hmm. were you in charge of one and were you an editor of one, would you have run this piece by Gomeshi? Ooh, I would have. I, I would have wanted to have run something that took that viewpoint, that showed us that viewpoint, but not like that. Let's put it that way. Um, whenever now, as a woman, I'm I'm very pro the Me Too thing, but I think it applies to everybody. I think it applies to men, you know, transgender, wh- whatever. Um, if you feel that you've been maligned or or your your space hasn't been been respected, then I think you have a legitimate reason for protesting but and and I'm very interested in the story of people who feel that they've been misunderstood or they see the light or something like that but it's uh, the problem with this it was a great idea to have the flip side story of, of me too wouldn't it have been better maybe done in the form of an interview by somebody who could have you know given the subject a bit of a going over and, and not given them basically a sort of free run in the New York Review of Books to say I'm not actually all that bad yeah, I think I think a, a better edit of that piece probably would have been uh, essential, actually. But also with Baruma let it, letting it go through and thinking that it was a good thing and saying the publisher was initially for it and, and the editors that surrounded him were also for it. And I, I think it's just a, a moment of taking your eye off the ball because it was I think it was part of a larger a larger series or a larger um, edition of of this topic of the Me Too and it was just the flip side and I think a lot of men 
are feeling this way. And I think a, a lot of men are saying, well, I did some things in the past that now would be considered bad. They were, cons- they were bad back then, too, but we didn't have the light to shine on it. Um, I would have taken, see, Fernando, I would have taken the view myself, were I editor of the New York Review of Books, <laughs> open to offers, uh, <laughs> um, I, 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 had, this, had this appeared in my email inbox as a suggestion just to have thought, I don't really care what this bloke thinks about anything. Uh, I, I, is it a worthwhile thing to run? Well, um, I, I did think about about this quite a lot, if I were the editor, what I would do. I mean, I'm not saying that I wouldn't publish the piece, but even if I did, perhaps a little disclosure on top of the article. They uh, have now appended they have done, one, yeah. I, I think when you add a disclosure, I don't see the problem, because as Karen will say, this issue of the New York Review of Books was the fall of man. So, I mean, an opinion like, Jen, perhaps, would be interesting for my readers. Not necessarily to agree with Jen, Mm -hmm. clearly, because, you know, I don't know exactly what he's done. I know he's being acquitted, but there's other, uh, you know, other cases that were not, didn't didn't go to court in a way. I think I would have done, and and I wonder if if the fact that Ian Ian Broome had to resign, if perhaps was a bit too abrupt, but it is very, uh, it's a very difficult decision anyway. Ben, what call would you have made? I, I, I do think Karen is correct. We, we do need to hear voices like this. And uh, I, I understand what you, what you mean, Andrew. I probably would have looked at that and thought, I personally don't care about what this, this person thinks. I mean, I hear, I hear people like Matt Lau, ousted uh, Today Show host, or Charlie Rose, ousted CBS This Morning host, saying that they plan to return to television at some point. And I think, look, that's probably just not going to happen, OK? Mm-hmm. But uh, I think... Unfortunately, as uncomfortable as it will make us, we do have to care about what harassers think and what potential harassers and potential uh, sexual predators. We do have to care about. Do what we they have think. to give them the imprimatur of you know auspicious literary journals? Can't we just say, look, mate, if you've got something you want to say, set up a WordPress site and knock yourself out? It's not going in my magazine. I think that would be potentially even more dangerous because then you're opening the door up to uh, all sorts of Breitbart-style rabbit holes of information. What we do need to do is make sure that we have an open conversation about all of this. The only way we're going to stop sexual predatory behaviour in the in the future is by working out where that sexually predatorial behaviour comes from. We've got to understand the root causes of it all. Otherwise, how are we ever going to stop it from happening in the first place? It makes us all feel uncomfortable. No one likes, most people don't like the idea of sexual assault. But it doesn't matter if it's uncomfortable. You've got to understand it. Otherwise, you're ignoring it. And it absolutely will happen again. This Me Too movement doesn't mean sexual assault is now finished and done with. It's, it's gone. No, of course not. It just means that people are going to come forward about it more. But what are we going to do about that? Karen, do we learn anything from this piece beyond the fact that this man acted like an entitled jerk when he thought he could get away with it? It turned out that he couldn't. Uh, he got his comeuppance and good. That's the way the world's supposed to work. Well, it's, 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 actually, it's actually more of a horror story than that. I mean, I mean when you read this, this piece... Um, it just and if you've ever been on any of the dating apps, this is sort of the this is sort of what you run into. Um, I thought it was a fascinating insight into someone who actually became a repre- reprehensible person, quite reprehensible in his own attitude to himself, and also seeing um, the the women he was with as as totems. And 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 in the piece, he says he got a, uh, a text from somebody who was a colleague that never spoke to him before. It's, it said, saw him with a really young woman and said, you're the king. And that was kind of the selling point. And I thought, there have been times when I've been out and I've been with a good-looking guy and I'm thinking, 
yeah, I'm the king. But I would never sort of base my whole career on that. I would never get my identity from that. And and I think it's interesting to see how fragile he was. It doesn't mean that we should be on his side, but I think it's an interesting look into that kind of personality. Fernando, did you did you buy the fragility plea that he was making there? Were you overwhelmed with sympathy for him or not? Well, not with sympathy for sure, but I have to say I I, I thought it was an interesting piece, you know, to to see what's on his mind in a way. But again, if you are the editor of a magazine, I have to say, disclaimer, have an, the opinion of the New York Review of Books about him in a way. I would allow his opinion to be on my magazine, but, you know, with my editorial, I don't know if I have an opinion piece of myself, just to give clarity to my readers as well. I also think, I know you before you get to Ben, um, I also think that he took a chance. This is an inflammatory piece, really. It's it's a, something really close to the wind. This is an Ian Barumi, you mean? Exactly. I mean, yeah, he, he he would have known a backlash was coming. Exactly, but unfortunately, it smacked him in the face. Uh, I mean, we we should look just quickly before we move on, Ben, at at the backlash itself. D- d- does commissioning this piece and I guess therefore inflaming opinion to that extent count as a resigning issue or not? Uh, yeah, in the case of this, yes, because the outrage was just too severe. But uh, it, he could have preempted that outrage by taking certain steps and maybe maybe thinking about this from a, a different perspective. I mean, look, the idea at the moment is that the conversation be- uh, about sexual assault has, has obviously been happening in completely different bubbles. You've got the way women feel about it and the way certain kinds of men feel about it. And the whole point of this is supposed to, we're, we're supposed to be bridging those two things. Maybe... Uh, off the top of my head, maybe he could have opened his role as editor up to a guest editor and got someone else to be at the helm for this particular issue. That might have nulled some of those criticisms before they actually happened. But look, at some point relatively soon, someone's going to make a documentary about all of these men who have fallen from grace. The Kevin Spaceys, the Charlie Roses, the Matt Lowers. Someone's going to do a big project starring all of those men. And I really hope it's someone who knows what they're doing. I hope this case doesn't scare away all everyone from, from tackling that really, really difficult topic. And I certainly hope when that project happens, it's not headlined by a man. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Karen Krasanovich, Ben Rylan, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Coming up next, another sitcom returns claiming contemporary pertinence. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture, and design, not to mention fashion, travel, and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you will get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Karen Krasanovic, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Ben Ryland. Well, it can't go as badly as the Roseanne comeback. This, at least, is the reassurance currently being swapped among CBS executives as they look forward to next week's debut of the revival of Murphy Brown, another 1980s-slash-1990s sitcom which has had the defibrillators applied in the belief that it has something to say about 2010's America. Like Roseanne, the Murphy Brown reboot features its original 
original star, in this instance Candace Bergen, and intends to mediate the Donald Trump presidency. Uh, Karen, first of all, how, how excited are you? I think this is really a good idea. I, 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 I love the fact that we're getting this this old popular thing back to see how it can swing in the in the current environment. It's always interesting. And I think Candace Bergen, fresh from the book club, which she was very, very good in it, is going to be a, a very interesting for a new demographic and for the old demographic. So as long as the writing is good and as long as they can deal with the new technology, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how the old folks handle the new stuff. Well, Fernando, this can probably claim slightly uh, greater purchase on modern life than some of the other revivals in that it is, of course, set in a, in the in the environs of television news. Uh, and obviously, news and media have become uh, yet another front line in America's interminable culture wars. Uh, does that give it an advantage if it, if it, if it can tackle the idea uh, of fake news? No, I, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I haven't seen actually Murphy Brown, the original, but from what I heard, especially at the end in 1998, they, they were kind of predicting that Fox News would be so popular in a way. So I, I think it's fascinating that it's back, uh, you know, like 20 years ago. And, and, and I do, I'm a, I'm a bit of a fan. I'm a big fan of Candice Bergen as well. And I, I, I really want to see what she's up to now as well. I mean, Ben, wouldn't it make more sense to come up with something completely new? Is there, is there, is there a certain amount of just desperate ambulance chasing going on among sitcom franchises? I don't think that's anything new. I mean, the, the when people are commissioning something, whether it's a movie or a, te or a television series, they want something that's a, a, a proven hit. And Diane English was actually already shopping around different projects. She wanted to make a, a sitcom surrounding uh, the... the uh, inspired by the people behind uh, Pod Save America, uh, Crooked Media, well, former speechwriters from Barack Obama. So she had these new projects that were politically minded uh, in her box of tricks, but no one was interested. They didn't want to throw money at her. Then someone came up with the idea of uh, returning Murphy Brown to screens, and and it happened. It's it's interesting, though. It's not just rooted in Trumpian politics. There's there's a bit of Me Too movement about this as as well. Uh, Leslie Moonves was the one who made the decision to bring this program back, and Candace Bergen was one of the the earlier voices who jumped on board to defend him when the allegations came out. She's since changed her tune on that and, and now after hearing from some of the uh, people on the other end of those assaults has, has said, I, I, he, clearly he wasn't the man that I thought I knew. And uh, that, of course, gives light to a whole bunch of other people who, who have had to come to grips with this idea of men who they thought they knew turning out to be very different people. But, you know, it's coming in, it's coming back at a time where Politics is so incredibly divisive, and I personally think that sitcoms are, most of the time, much more equipped at getting across these very complicated messages to people that's in a much more unifying way, because a lot more people will sit down and digest an episode of Murphy Brown or Will and Grace or friends or the golden girls uh one of those is not very political the others are uh and they'll they'll listen to the themes there often those themes are incredibly difficult to explain whereas you know on cable news often there's a whole bunch of people shouting and that's not very attractive a lot of the time uh, karen my own hastily improvised theory here is that what cbs are banking on is is annoying trump to the point where he starts rage tweeting murphy brown which obviously for any content creator of any sort in the world right now is a massive lottery win uh, it, it, it's what everybody wants. As soon as Trump sort of singles out your book or your newspaper or your television program, you, you know, you're absolutely golden at that point. I mean, 
Even if he does that, though, can Murphy Brown get back to anything like where it was? It did once previously famously annoy a vice president, mm. uh, the, the nitwitted Dan Quayle. Um, it's, I looked this up earlier. The episode they made responding to Dan Quayle's criticisms uh, pulled 70 million viewers. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> that is a lot. Well, she was mocking, mocking fatherhood, I believe, yes. Um, I, I doubt that Murphy, Murphy Brown will ever reach the, those, those lofty heights because I think the competition is too fierce, the choice is too much, and I think some people won't be attracted to, to this particular cast or, or its method. Um, and I, I think, I think, I think it's, it's competitive, and as long as the writing is good, I think people will, word of mouth will spread. I mean, there's some wonderful lines from 1988 that you were talking about how they inserted things into... Um, into a sitcom you couldn't get across. Something like, uh, when after finding out that Murphy is pregnant, and this was the big thing that Dan mm-hmm. Quayle didn't like, uh, Murphy, do you need any money? She goes, Jim, I make as much as you do. Goes, Good God, is this true? <laughs> that sort of thing. So I, I, think, I think if they're, if they're sticking to that, it's the subtleties of stuff that you're still hearing at the dinner table or you're still hearing on public transport or in the office that's going to make this show a hit. Okay, well, finally tonight, though the popular parlor game of naming the next James Bond continues, again, open to offers, uh, we do now know the name of the director of the next and 25th James Bond movie. Stepping up following the decamp of Danny Boyle is Carrie Fukunaga, hitherto best known for Jane Eyre and Beasts of No Nation, among others. Um, ben, the big question here is, does it, at this point, 24 films in, does it really matter who directs James Bond films? I mean, you kind of know what the deal is. You want lots of fast cars, um, lots of beautiful women, a, a supervillain in a hollowed-out volcano, and that that's pretty much it, isn't mm. it? <laughs> not quite, not quite. I, absolutely, it absolutely matters, because although we look at James Bond and think, well, you know, that's a tried and true franchise. James Bond isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Actually, no. All you need is a massive box office bomb, and that's going to put the series to sleep for a decade, maybe two decades. Just remember back what happened when uh, Joel Schumacher took over the Batman franchise. We had Batman and Robin put the series to sleep, did not come back for many, many, many years. That could easily happen to James Bond, and you know this is a very important franchise. They need to get it right. Past directors and past actors have got it very, very wrong, so we know how badly it can go. And, you know, you only have to look at a lot of the James Bond films over the years to see that, actually, they all have their own colour palette. They all have their own particular style. Each actor has given it something new. I don't think, especially if you, if you compare the Daniel Craig years with Pierce Brosnan, they're not that far apart, but my goodness, they're so different. Uh, Karen, a professional cineast that you are, what what does the new director bring to the franchise? Well, uh, first of all, I think a very, very fresh perspective. I mean, um, uh, he's very good with television, and I think that that's important because people are watching more and more television also. There's the aspect of the story arc, which isn't so important uh, for James Bond, but it might... I mean, traditionally, the story arc wasn't that important, but I think now that we've got the time bombs of what to do with the Bond girls, right? We've got to be careful with them because they have to be smart, but also have to be cute, but not that cute. We can't exploit them. <laughs> ah. And then, then there's the element of cars, who's, you know, there's a lot. Of product placement is also going to be huge. So so this director understands the the actual thrust of James Bond that has to be commercial, has to be watchable. It is not some place where you come to be an auteur. It's not some place that you come to exercise your freedom. You are here to work within the restraints of Eon. 
Fernando, the the new director's previous association with Idris Elba will, of course, revive that rumour. Um, I, I, I did want to ask the three of you, and I will start with you, Fernando, while we still have time to move on to that popular parlour game. Who do you think should be the next James Bond? Well, I had two options in mind, and they're completely different, actually. Uh, one is Liam Neeson. Uh, some people might think he's a bit too old. I don't think so. I think Liam would think he's too old. <laughs> yeah, but, and Jess Williams, just because he's incredibly hot. And I think <laughs> that's, that's very important to be a James Bond as well. Let's be honest here. That, that is true. That uh, is true. Ben, ben, do you have a pick? Oh, look, I, I'm really torn, actually, because I, I don't mind a bit, of an, a bit of an older Bond. I think sometimes we can get a little bit ageist about these things. Um, but so so I, I'm back at the race, is what you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, I wouldn't mind uh, someone like uh, uh, Matthew Good, I think, would be quite a good option uh, if, if we're going for, for someone young. If we're going for someone a, a little bit older, I mean, Clive Owen was apparently passed yeah. over some years ago, and I, even though his star has faded quite a bit, I think he'd still make a perfect Bond. Uh, and Karen, finally? Mm-hmm. Well, everybody's talking Richard Madden, aren't they? I mean, I mean, Idris, Idris Elba has said, you know, I'm too old for this. I'm, personally, I would love Bond to be more like Doctor Who. Uh, you know, really, I would like to have a woman. I'd like to have a gay man. I'd like to have somebody who's bisexual, but still look great in a, in a dinner suit. That's the important thing. Wear an expensive watch, double D clutch, off into the sunset. Don't forget the pair of Speedos as well, like, you know, Daniel Craig did that very well in Casino Royale. Yeah, be still my heart. That's true. <laughs> that does on that heartwarming moment. Bring us to the end uh, of today's show. Karen Krasanovich, Ben Ryland and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you very much for joining us here at Midori House. Thanks also to our researcher, Leah Fournier, and our studio manager, David Stevens. More music next at 1900. It's the menu. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. 